Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon taking your phone calls if you want to call in with questions about the Bible or about the Christian faith. You're welcome to do that. Uh, we have an hour to talk to you about those things. If you disagree with the host about something, uh, you're welcome to call in and we can talk about that also. The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. I've been announcing uh, for a little while now that I'm going to be, uh, in the latter part of this week and early next week, speaking at a series of locations, quite a few locations, uh, in the Central Valley of California including as, as far north as the Sacramento area and as far south as uh, Fresno. And uh, so there's going to be uh, quite a few places I'll be speaking, and you may want to check that out if you live in those areas. The, you just go to thenarrowpath.com, our website, and look under Announcements, and you'll find the time and place of those. The one thing I need to give a little detail about, and I have already before, uh, but you may not have heard, and that is that in Fresno on uh, Sunday, this Sunday, I'll be uh, in the afternoon and uh, into the evening, I'll be uh, giving a uh, kind of a seminar on the four views of Revelation. I believe it's about three hours, something like that, uh, in the afternoon Sunday. Uh, if you're in the Fresno area and want to join us for that, uh, I, there's no charge, but they do, the church that is hosting it would like to have people register so they have some idea how many people are coming. So uh, how to do that, if you want to, can also be found at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under announcements. And uh, before we go to the phones, I received a postcard uh, from uh, Mark in Linden, Washington. And uh, he had a, a point of disagreement, speaking of uh, people calling to disagree. Uh, I should give you some background for this. Um, we were talking sometime, I don't remember when, uh, it could have been a long time ago, could have even been on a recorded program that, that played while I was away. Uh, I don't remember this discussion recently, but uh, we were talking about apparently Matthew 24 and the passages that talk about the days of Noah. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 28, excuse me, 24, 38, uh, for as the days before the flood... Uh, in those days, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will it also be in the coming of the Son of Man. Now, uh, what I pointed out there is that the days of Noah were pretty wicked days. The Bible says the earth was full of violence and the thoughts and intents of men's hearts were only evil continually. And that's the main thing we remember about the days of Noah when we read it in Genesis chapter 6. And therefore, many people have said that in the end times, before Jesus comes back, we're going to see that kind of uh, wholesale corruption of humanity again. We're going to see all that crime and that violence and that, uh, ir, you know, that idolatry and that sacrilege and so forth. And many times people point to the fact that those things are happening now and say, see, it's like the days of Noah were. People were that bad. Now, what I said is that Jesus doesn't say that it's going to be bad in that way, as it was in the days of Noah. Jesus didn't mention any of that behavior, and he could have easily. It would have been very simple for Jesus to say, as it was in the days of Noah, they were murdering and raping and, and stealing and blaspheming. 
Uh, and all of that would have been true because it, that's how it was, in fact, in the days of old. But that's not the point Jesus makes. Jesus makes no allusion at all to the wickedness of the people in the earth in the days of Noah. Although he could have. He left that part out. All he said was, the way that it'll be like the days of Noah is that the flood came and took them when they were totally unexpecting it. And the only activities they were doing that are mentioned, of course, there were other there, there were other things they were doing, but Jesus doesn't bring those up because they're not part of his point he's making. He says they ate, they drank, they married, they got, you know, they were given in marriage. In Luke's version, it says, and they bought and they sold. Uh, in other words, these are things people do all the time, and they're not bad things. There's nothing bad about eating or drinking. People do that every day, many times a day, and, and pretty much need to do it some. Uh, people get married. That's a good thing. Get married's a good thing. Um, the Bible says marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled. So that's not a bad thing. Uh, buying and selling is another thing that's mentioned. Well, that's per- certainly part of everyday life. Uh, none of those things are bad things, which is interesting because Jesus was saying, the days before his coming will be like the days of Noah, but not in every respect. The only respect he mentions is that people were doing ordinary stuff, the kind of stuff people do when they have no idea they're going to die that later that day. If you knew you were going to die today, would you get married today? Would you go out and buy something? Uh, you know, you might not even have much uh, interest in eating. Um, but the point that he makes is they were doing all these ordinary things that they did their whole lives. People do these things in every generation, their whole lives. But they were doing these very things right up until the day that the flood came and destroyed them. So what Jesus is saying is they were oblivious. He doesn't make any commentary on, about their um, their moral lives, although we certainly can get information about that. That's not the point that Jesus was making about the end times. Now, uh, Mark wrote to me and said, uh, Steve, you added a word that's not in the Bible. The word is only. You make it seem like Jesus said that eating and drinking, giving and marriage and so forth are the only signs of, uh, as in the days of Noah or Lot, that would manifest before he returns. But Jesus didn't say that. So the other things happening in the days of Noah could also come into play. Okay, well, I'm not going to deny that other things could be similar, Um all I'm, you know, I, I, I don't really make a lot of um, speculations about what things might be that the Bible never mentions. I'm, you know, I'm a Bible teacher. I don't write scripture. I, I teach it. And so teaching it obliges me to point out what's there and what isn't. And it seems to me very significant that Jesus doesn't mention the things that we think of as the most characteristic features of the days of Noah. That is the, uh, the total wickedness of the people. And n- now, that doesn't mean that in the days before Jesus comes back, there won't be similar wickedness. There, there easily could be. I'm just saying that's not predicted. Jesus didn't predict that it would be like that. He predicted things. The only things he mentioned are things that were making a different point altogether. He was not making the point that the people were wicked. He's making the point that they were clueless, that they were caught totally without expectation of their impending doom. So that's what he said it'll be like in the end times. Now, when you say, well, Jesus didn't say this is the only way that it will be uh, like the days of Noah. You're right, he didn't. But he didn't suggest there were any other ways either. The fact that Jesus didn't say that this is the only way it'd be similar, I suppose, leaves open the possibility it could be similar in other ways too, as you're pointing out. But that's not the point I was making. The point I was making is, 
It may be similar to the days of Noah in other respects, too. But we don't have any reason to assume that Jesus is saying it'll be like the days of Noah in any respects other than what he mentions, especially in view of the fact of what he actually leaves out, which could have been so glaringly included. I mean, just to say it'll be like the days of Noah doesn't mean that everything we know about the days of Noah will be reflected in the end times. For example, in the days of Noah, uh, people lived to be about 900 years old before they died, typically. Uh, will it be like that again? Will people be living to be about 900 years old uh, in the days when Jesus is coming back? Um, in the days of Noah, nobody had ever seen a rainbow. Is that going to be the way it is in, uh, in the end times, that no one living on earth has ever seen a rainbow? No, those are, those are things that were true in the days of Noah that aren't necessarily true since the flood and certainly won't necessarily be true at the time of the coming of Christ. If we want to multiply everything we know about the days of Noah and say all of that is going to be the same before Jesus comes back, well, then we're doing that on our own. We don't have any authorization from Christ to do that. What I'm saying is if I was sitting listening to Jesus giving that sermon, I would have no uh, reason to believe that anything about the days of Noah will be similar to the end times except the, the thing that Jesus said would be similar. Namely, that people would be cluelessly going on with their lives and then suddenly interrupted by a totally unexpected death and judgment. And by the way, that's what Paul brings out also in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says in verse 3, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He's talking about the day of the Lord uh, there too, as Jesus was. And basically what Paul's saying is the same thing Jesus said. They, they, they think they're secure. They don't know there's any danger. And then suddenly, boom, destruction comes upon them. That's, that's what Paul says. That's what Jesus said. And, you know, you're not going to get me to say that things will not be morally corrupt in the end times. They're, they very well could be morally corrupt. They might be even as morally corrupt as they were in the days of Noah. But we have no authorization from Scripture to say that. That's what I'm pointing out. As a Bible teacher... I'm only allowed to, to affirm what I can find taught in the Bible. And if you, if you wish I would affirm other things that you believe are true, um, well, you find them in the Bible and I, I can affirm them, but uh, that's just the way I roll. And so I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just saying I, you know, this is, this is the need for us is to look at scriptures and see what's there and affirm that. Uh, Alberto from San Diego, California. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Uh, hi, good afternoon, Steve. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was interested in, uh, in reading the book of Enoch, but, uh, I, I know it's not in, it's not in the Bible. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those, those other gospels that are out there. But I was just wondering, I wanted to ask you, do you know if it's, uh, is it, can we trust it? Cause it's trustworthy as inspired by God. Not only, not only the book of Enoch, but like the other gospels that are out there, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of, uh, Mary Magdalene. I mean, can we trust those as, as scripture? Well, I don't trust any of them for the simple reason that the authors lied. Um, and when you catch somebody in a lie, then it's very difficult to trust them. That doesn't mean that if they tell a lie, they won't ever say anything true. But it does mean that you can't take them to be writing reliable scripture if the first word out of their mouth or the first word on the page is a lie. Uh, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of uh, Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, and so forth. These are these are what we call uh, Gnostic 
Gospels, and they, they were not written by any of the people whose names are on them. They claimed to be written by these people, but they weren't, and that's why we say they lied. They, they said they were Peter, but, the, you know, Peter didn't write it. Philip didn't write the Gospel of Philip, and so forth. We don't know who did. These uh, so-called Gospels were written anonymously by someone in the second or third century, long after all the apostles were dead. And uh, somebody, you know, uh, exploited uh, their anonymity and, uh, and uh, wrote on the coattails of the credibility of these apostles and claimed to be them, which is a, a fraudulent thing to do. And so if the first lines in a book are fraudulent, then I, you know, whatever else may be in the book, I, I can't say what's true or what's not, but I'm not going to accept it as scripture. Uh, because if I catch a scripture, uh, you, know, you know, if I find a lie in scripture, that disqualifies the writer as, as a writer of scripture, as far as I'm concerned. So that's what those Gnostic Gospels are. And by the way, they're called Gnostic Gospels because they reflect a theology uh, which the early church recognized as heretical called Gnosticism. They were simply trying to uh, piggyback upon the popularity of Jesus by writing uh, books about Jesus coming from a Gnostic point of view. And uh, no, they, they're not of any value at all except to let us know what the Gnostics thought. But if you want to know what the Christians thought, including the apostles, they thought Gnosticism was a heresy. The book of First John appears to be addressing Gnostic ideas uh, and refuting them. Uh, Colossians uh, gives impression of uh, some Gnostic-type influence that Paul is refuting in, in Colossae. Now, Gnosticism as a complete system of heresy didn't develop fully or become a serious problem in the church until the second century. But even in the first century, we find that Paul and John are finding some of the elements of Gnosticism uh, creeping into the churches uh, in the first century, and, and they find they have to refute them. So in the second and third century, after the apostles were gone, for anonymous writers to claim to be the apostles and then to teach Gnosticism is, is very disingenuous. Now, what about Enoch? Enoch wasn't one of the Gospels. It was written before Jesus came, so Jesus is not mentioned in Enoch. Um, if it was a, a Bible book at all, it belonged to the Old Testament. Enoch was an Old Testament character. He lived before the flood, but he didn't, he didn't write the book of Enoch. Like the, like the Gnostic Gospels, the book of Enoch is what we call a pseudepigraphal book, meaning it was written under an assumed name. The person who wrote it was not Enoch, but he claimed to be. Now, in, in the two centuries before Christ came, quite a few Jewish books appeared that had that same characteristic, just like in the century after the apostles, uh, quite a few books were written under the names of the apostles falsely. So, obviously, uh, just as, the, as they were heresies introduced into the church, or attempted to be introduced in the church by false gospel writers after the time of the apostles. So before the time of Christ, there was there was uh, quite a few books written by Jews under false names too, and Enoch was one of them. Now the writer of Enoch claims to be quote Enoch the seventh from Adam unquote. Uh, well, the seventh generation from Adam was the man Enoch who walked with God and was not, and uh, he lived into, and left the earth before the flood. Uh, so he certainly wasn't writing a book in the second century or the first century B.C. The flood was like, you know, 2,500 years earlier than that. So Enoch didn't write the book of Enoch. It's just one of the many pseudepigraphal books. Um, 
it's it, it has interested many people to read it, uh, but you can't really assume that anything in it is is reliable uh, because the the first line in the book is a lie, and so no, I would not at all uh, recommend. Enoch as a uh, reading it as if it's something trustworthy. Now it is interesting. I've read parts of Enoch. I have it on my shelf. I've read parts of the other Gospels, but um, reading them is one thing. But but see, I've read part of the Quran. I've read part of the Book of Mormon. Uh, in other words, I read books that aren't Christian books, but I don't read them as Christian books. I don't I don't mistake them for Christian books. And so that's what I would suggest to you also. Do not make that mistake. All right, our next caller is John calling from Washington State. Hi, John. Welcome. Hello there. Good afternoon. So um, I had a discussion in, in my group here a bit ago, and um, I made the contention that, um, um, like the song, I Surrender All, is inaccurate in the fact that we should be submitting instead. When I did a, a word search for surrender in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, surrender is never found in the New Testament, and surrender in the Old Testament usually is done by people that have been conquered. And I'm, I'm, my idea is that we should be submitting to Christ as, is, as he is king, not conqueror, so we shouldn't be surrendering to him. Just wanted your thoughts on that idea. Well, I don't see that big of a difference. Uh, in it. I, I certainly wouldn't make an issue of that because the Bible does talk about us as if we were conquered by Christ because we were once enemies of his and now we've surrendered to him. We've, we've come under submission. To, when an enemy actually does yield submission to, uh, to a conqueror, uh, that is surrender and, and that is submission. So I, yeah, I wouldn't make the same, I wouldn't have the same concern. You know, Paul says, that we are, uh, that Christ leads us in, in triumph is what he says. And in speaking that way, I believe what he's saying is that Christ has, in fact, conquered us. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which we were enemies and had to be defeated. That is, our resistance had to be defeated. He didn't come and attack us in a hostile way or anything like that. And maybe the idea of Jesus conquering us might might make someone think in those terms, but that's not what I understand it to be saying. Um, I understand it to be saying that he's um, that he simply has won us over, and we were formerly uh, against him, and therefore there is a sense in which um, in which I would have to say we we were conquered. So uh, submit or surrender. I mean, they're they're both similar ideas. Um, so. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not going to object to the language of either. Either case, I would say they're pretty okay. similar. I, I like the I like the idea that we are conquered because we were enemies. So that's that's a good right. that's a good slant too. Okay, appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, John. God bless you. Thanks for your call. Uh, Barbara from uh, Roseville, Michigan. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Oh, hi, Steve. I wanted to comment on what you were talking about. No, I just wanted to add a little blurb because the Bible says line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. So as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Lord. That's all I wanted to add. Okay. Um, in other words, you're just saying that in addition to saying that it'll be like the days of Noah, it also says if you go over to Luke chapter 17, 
It'll also be like the days of Lot. Okay, well, thank you for your thought. Uh, let's talk to Eve from Georgia. Eve, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hello, Steve. Thank you for Hi. taking my call. All right. I really yes. appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. I have two questions, and I'm just going to ask them, and I get off the air. Okay. One is from Isaiah 46:10, which says that I will declare the end from the beginning. I was just wondering, is this is that what God did in Genesis? That's one question. The other question is from Leviticus 23, which has to do with the feasts of the uh, feasts of the Lord. Does that have any prophetic meaning? Okay. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you for your call. Um, all right, well, um, in Isaiah 46, 10, when it says that he is God declaring the end from the beginning and uh, from the ancient times, things that are yet done, you're saying, does this refer to him uh, declaring the beginning of time in Genesis? I don't think this is referring to that. Although it wouldn't be, it, it would do no harm to see it that way, and, and it might even be correct. I think what he's saying is that God, unlike other gods, is able to tell what's going to happen. In fact, he's been declaring what's going to happen. He's been doing it from the beginning. Now, I don't know if he means they're the same beginning as we read of in, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1:1, because actually, in Genesis 1:1, God wasn't specifically uh, declaring future things. Uh, he was making things. But, I mean, I, you know, if you wanted to say, yeah, right from the very beginning of creation, God's been declaring stuff. But I think what he's saying in Isaiah is that I'm telling you what's going to happen in the future. And I've been doing it for a long time. You know, I've, I've declared from the beginning the things that are going to happen. But from the beginning could easily mean the beginning of his prophesying, uh, possibly the, the beginning of Isaiah's ministry um, or something like that. Uh, but again, if, if you want to say, well, he's saying that from the very beginning of Genesis 1, uh, he has been declaring what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think he means that, but, but I could see how you could uh, kind of make it mean that if you said, well, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And he said, let dry land appear. And it appeared. So he's declaring what was going to be. But that, that was in a different sense. That was more of a creative fiat where he's actually calling something into existence by declaring it. Whereas I think here he's talking about that he's declaring future events because he knows them and is revealing them rather than creating them. So it's a, that'd be a, a somewhat of a different thing. Now, you asked about the festivals of Israel, the Feast of the Lord, as they're sometimes called, in uh, Leviticus 23. There we have the entire uh, calendar year of the Jewish um, you know, rituals and so forth. And there are several holy holy days and holy weeks. Of course, there's the Sabbath. That's a holy day every week. There's the new moons, which are the first day of each month. So it's a monthly holy day. And then three times a year, there were uh, festivals where Israel was supposed to present themselves before the Lord. Two of those were a week long. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, uh, which was also unleavened bread. Now, this calendar does seem to have symbolic value and prophetic value because the Passover actually is where it actually for, for, uh, foreshadowed the death of Christ. And he even died on the Passover. That's why the Jews were celebrating this very festival. Jesus died and fulfilled the meaning of the rituals. Uh, 
Uh, likewise, a Pentecost, which is a single day, um, was the the bringing in of the first fruits in some respects, and God brought the first fruits of the church in on the day of Pentecost, while the Jews were celebrating that very day on their calendar. The Holy Spirit fell and and brought in the first fruits of the of the church. Now the other festivals, uh, some things uh, are are easy to identify and some are not. Um, for example, on the first Sunday after Passover, th- that day was called first fruits, and it was the day they brought in uh, the sheaves of the barley harvest and waved them before God, and it was the the first fruits of the harvest. And we know that on that day, the Sunday after Passover, Jesus rose from the dead, and Paul said he was the first fruits of those who 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 were who had died. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So there are ways in which these festivals connect with events later on. Now, all those feasts we were talking about were in the spring or the summer, but there were also fall feasts, which included Yom Kippur, uh, included trumpets, included uh, um, tabernacles, and um, those those feasts. Uh, there is some disagreement among Christians as to what their fulfillment was, but there's every reason to believe that their fulfillment either did happen or will happen, because uh, just like the other feasts we just mentioned, we have seen actual fulfillment of those. So it's clear that giving these calendar festivals, God was predicting some things uh, that would happen. So I would say, yes, they have a prophetic uh, functioning. We have a a break coming up here, uh, but we also have another half hour, so we're not going away, so don't you go away. Um, The Narrow Path is a listener-supported ministry, and I have to tell you this every day because we don't have any commercials and and we don't have any um, sponsors. We don't take commercial breaks, so it's important that you know that we we do have expenses, and we don't uh, look to sponsors to cover them. We just let you know that we are listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air to pay the radio bills, you can. You can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can donate from the website where everything is free. That's thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. In the series, When Shall These Things Be?, you'll learn that the biblical teaching concerning the rapture, the tribulation, Armageddon, the Antichrist, and the millennium are not necessarily in agreement with the wild sensationalist versions of these doctrines found in popular prophecy teaching and Christian fiction. The lecture series entitled, When Shall These Things Be?, can be downloaded without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you want to call in with questions about the Bible or the Christian faith or with disagreements you might have with the host, we'll be glad to hear from you. Again, we have a half hour, and we have a couple of lines open. If you want to call now, you can probably get through. Well, you can if you call right now. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737.
37. Our next caller today is Casey from California. Casey, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, Steve. Um, I was calling just because uh, my buddy mentioned me or mentioned you, and I haven't seen you in a long time. Um, I live in Temecula. I came over to your house a few times, so I honestly was just calling to let you know and just say hi. And um, Yeah. And, uh, are you still in the area? Actually, I haven't heard from you for years. I am. I haven't heard from you. I know. That's what okay. I was, that's what I, yeah, my buddy just, my buddy Jeff, I'll give a shout out because he's listening. Um, he's like, hey, I'm listening to the narrow path. And I was like, Steve Gregg? I was like, I know Steve Gregg. I interviewed him. And I just seen, I looked up, you got a new book coming out. So it looks like you're doing well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to yeah, say I've got several idea. books out since you saw me last. So come on by and see me sometime. Yes. All right, Steve. I, I'll I, let you get back need... to. Go ahead. Yeah, it's good to hear from you again. I'm glad glad you're still in the land of the living. I wonder what happened to you. Good to hear from you. <laughs> I actually, Steve. I, I I know it's a long. I mean, you don't have to get into it now, but I actually became a Orthodox uh, Christian, an Antiochian Orthodox Christian. So, uh huh. I know others. I who would have, love to catch know? up. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk sometime. Yes. All right, Steve. Good. Well, I Give just me a call. To say hi. Our, okay. Yes. Okay. God bless you, Casey. Hey, you too, right. Steve. Yeah, it's been a long time. All right. Let's talk to Fred from Alameda, California. Fred, welcome to the Narrow Path. Yes. Um, I I was interested in those two callers last Friday because I know someone who's in and out of my life, and he tends to be very contrary, I mean, extremely contrary. I know his, I, I like his uh, personality. Before you go further, b- yeah. before you go further I, I, don't know what, I don't know what two callers you're talking about. Okay, yeah, I was just about listeners. to mention that. I was just about to mention that. Okay. So anyway, okay. Um, last Friday, um, a caller asked you about how many times should you give someone something i mean not that that's true in my case but he was talking about boundaries and okay he was saying at what point do you say no and then your first caller his general theme was about forgiveness and the last question he asked you can you forgive someone and then want if not have anything to do with them and so my question is i have a verse for you i don't have it in front of me so i have to quote it it's in the New Testament. It's a King James Version, and I think what I'm quoting is verbatim. It says, uh, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, having a form of godliness, denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now, I have two questions about that. My first question is, does this merit cutting someone off completely, if you can identify that with someone? Well, what Paul is talking about in what Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians is that there are people who are false teachers, false false oh. apostles, uh, okay. false prophets. Yeah, yeah. He's not talking about people who have done something offensive to you. He's talking oh. about people who are are you know leading people away from Christ with their own false claims to being apostles, which is he, Paul compares that with uh, you know Satan himself transforming mm-hmm. himself into an angel of light. So, uh, yeah, these these would not be people you'd be in fellowship with. These are people okay. you need to turn away from. Yeah. So that verse, that verse is that in fact demonic possession? 
Well, I don't think it has to be. I mean, certainly demonic demonic possession is a reality in many cases, but I don't know that you, if you claim to be an apostle and you're not an apostle, that doesn't necessarily mean you're demon-possessed. Okay. Uh, there'd, there'd have to be other other reasons to believe that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I guess that doesn't quite connect. I was just wondering if it, it connected with those two callers and what I'm going through also. I see, yeah. Yeah, the verse you quoted was actually not one verse, but you, you, you kind of mixed parts of Second Corinthians and Timothy. But, but yeah, I know, the, I know the information, and those are both passages that are talking about false teachers or, or people who you know, try to lead the church astray from the gospel. Um, okay, let's talk to uh, Sean from Surrey, British, uh, oops, British Columbia. Uh, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hello, I'll thank you for what you do. Um, here's what's going on. I got a buddy who seems to be like going down a bit of a rabbit hole, and somebody else, their explanation is it's uh, part of the Hebrew roots movement. So I'm hoping yeah, you could just a share a little bit of light on that for me, please. Yeah, well, that is a rabbit hole. It's a distraction from from the gospel. Um, yeah, yeah. Christianity, uh, you know, is really about following Jesus. And some people feel like, well, we need to follow Jesus, but we also need to follow Moses. Now they would argue that following Moses is part of following Jesus, because they would say that Jesus followed Moses, um, and therefore, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to go his way, because he was a Jew. And he was circumcised as a baby, and he was uh, he was dedicated in the temple as a baby, and he was no doubt bar mitzvah, though don't have, we don't have record of it, and and that he uh, he operated within the Jewish culture and went to the temple and and uh, you know things like that, and uh, so they say, well, if we're going to follow Jesus, you need to follow him in his Jewishness. Now, this is not any part of what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach we should follow Jesus, but Jesus actually didn't follow Moses as carefully as you would if you were if you're trying to be Torah observant. Jesus touched lepers. Uh, Jesus touched or allowed himself to be touched by a woman with an issue of blood. Jesus touched dead bodies to raise them from the dead. We have records of all those things happening. And under the law, those things would make a man unclean for a week. And he wouldn't be able to be around people, wouldn't be able to go to the temple, and Jesus paid no attention to that. He just, you know, he he did things that under the Torah would make a man defiled. In fact, Jesus made a statement in, in Mark chapter 7 that what goes into a man's mouth will not defile him. And it's in the context of f- foods, uh, you know, that, that can defile you or not. He said, well, you, you're not defiled by what goes into your mouth. And And Mark says in Mark 7, Thus he declared all foods to be clean, which is very contrary to the Torah. The Torah did not observe all foods to be clean. Um, Jesus uh, probably kept the Sabbath a lot of the time, but he didn't keep it all the time. Because, again, he was not, uh, he was not required to be Torah observant. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's, he, was the, he was God in the flesh. And as such, uh, he said his father doesn't keep Sabbath. That's what he said when he was challenged on the point that he didn't keep Sabbath because he, he worked the same work on the Sabbath he did every, every other day of the week, which is what violating the Sabbath means. The Sabbath law said you shall do all your normal work six days and don't do any of it on the seventh day. Well, Jesus did his normal work six days, and they did it on the Sabbath too. So he didn't stop working on the Sabbath. <coughs> and therefore, when they criticized him for that, 
he said, well, my father works essentially every day. He says, my father works hitherto, and I also do. What he's saying is my father doesn't stop working uh, one day a week, and I'm learning the trade from him. I'm his apprentice. I'm his son. I'm learning my father's trade, and I do things the way my father does them. That's what his discussion in John 5 was saying. So, you know, Jesus did not, in fact, fully observe the Torah. He, he said that he had come to fulfill it. But fulfilling it doesn't mean necessarily being subject to it. It means bringing about what it was there to anticipate. He said the law and the prophets, he came not to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So he wasn't the enemy of the Torah, but he was the fulfiller of the Torah. And that's why we don't keep, why we don't observe animal sacrifices today. A major part of Torah observance was animal sacrifices. Uh, and, and we are not required to do that. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled that. But he didn't just fulfill that part of the Torah. He actually said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, that not one jot or tittle, that is not one little detail of the Torah, will pass away until it is all fulfilled. So what he's saying is we're not going to lose part of the Torah and retain the rest of it. It's all going to be fulfilled. And until it's all fulfilled, no part of it will pass away. Okay, so it's either all in force or none of it's in force. Either it's not one jot or tittle has changed or it has been fulfilled. All of it been fulfilled, then it's no longer serving its, its previous purpose to anticipate something that, that was going to happen. Jesus is what was going to happen. And therefore, uh, either we have to keep the whole law, and that would include all the animal sacrifices and the festivals and the dietary laws uh, and all that stuff, all 613 laws that God gave to Israel. We'd have to keep every one of them or else none of them. They're either all fulfilled or none of them are fulfilled. That's, that's basically what Jesus said. Now, we know that nobody could argue that none of them are fulfilled because of the you know, circumcision is no longer required. That's made very clear in the New Testament. Animal sacrifices are not required. So it's clear that, uh, it, you know, it's, it's all fulfilled. And therefore, to go back to it is to go back to what Paul called shadows. He said, don't let anyone judge you. This is Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He said, do not let anyone judge you concerning festivals or, uh, or what you, he said, what you eat or drink or, or keeping festivals like we were talking about the, the Leviticus 23 festival year, uh, or new moons or Sabbath days. So those things were a shadow for the time being, but the body, the, the real thing is Jesus. So we, we embrace Jesus. We don't embrace the shadows. And um, the Galatians were Christian Gentiles who were being persuaded by Judaizers that they, the Galatian Christians, should get circumcised and start keeping the whole Torah. And Paul said, if you do that, you've fallen from grace. He told them. He says, you who seek to be justified by the law, you are estranged from Christ. You are fallen from grace. Paul's very emphatic. He said that those who are teaching this were teaching a false gospel. It's in that context that he says in Galatians 1.8. He says, uh, you know, if anyone teaches any other gospel that I've taught you, let him be accursed, anathema. And, of course, he's talking about those who are teaching the Judaizing gospel, as he makes very clear. So um, he said, if you get circumcised, you're obligated to keep the whole Torah. 
all 613 laws. Well, if you've got that obligation, you're out of luck because the temple has been gone since A.D. 70, and nobody has kept the whole Torah since then. Uh, so people who want to get into the Jewish roots, you know, what's really interesting, most of them, they sometimes call themselves Torah observant or law observant, uh, most of them couldn't tell you what the 613 laws even are. So they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. They've just become enamored with, uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a strange psychological mindset uh, to be enamored with all things Jewish. And uh, they say, yeah, well, I'm a, you know, we keep the Torah. And what's that mean? Well, we go to a Messianic synagogue. And what do you do there? Well, we, we, uh, we wear yarmulkes and we wear tzitzits and we, and we, uh, we, we blow the shofar, the ram's horn. And we, uh, we parade the Torah scrolls across the room. Um, well, okay, you do all this, but none of those things are commanded in the Torah. Those are not, that's not Torah observance because the Torah doesn't require any of those things. None of those things are commanded in the Torah. Those are all rabbinic traditions. In other words, they are traditions of the elders. They're Talmudic. Uh, you know, the synagogue observance is... Synagogues aren't even mentioned in the Torah. They didn't exist in the days of Moses, and they didn't exist for several hundred years after Moses. This is all post-Torah traditions that, that the Jews, the rabbis, added, and which Jesus couldn't have cared less about. Remember, Jesus told them, they, they accused Jesus of violating their rabbinic traditions. They said, well, you break the law of God to keep your traditions, you know. So, I mean, he didn't care about the traditions. He said, full well, you... you uh, you, you break the law of God to keep your traditions. Uh, and he says, Isaiah spoke well of you. You know, these people draw near to me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Uh, in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines of the traditions of men. You find that taught, uh, that, that information in Mark 7 and, and, and uh, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 15. So, you know, this whole Jewish roots thing, the Jewishness is not our root. Jesus is our root. We're rooted and grounded in Jesus. And yes, he was Jewish. But if he had been Chinese, that doesn't mean that followers of Jesus have to adopt Chinese traditions. Or if he had been, you know, uh, Mexican, that, that, that people who follow Jesus have to uh, adopt uh, Mexican culture. Uh, Jesus is transcultural. He's, he's international. He's the king of kings. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. No, there's no local or national or ethnic traditions uh, that Christians are all supposed to follow. And certainly not the traditions of the Old Covenant, which the Bible says are obsolete in Hebrews 8.13. So that would be my brief uh statement of disapproval. By the way, if you want more detailed information that, at our website, among the thousands of lectures of mine that you can download for free and listen to, there's a set called Torah Observance, which I think maybe is four or six lectures long. And there's another set called Jewish Roots, which is four or six lectures. I forget how long. One of them is four and one's six lectures. But uh, you can listen to those and they go into this much more detail than I can here. But, yeah, at, the, at thenarrowpath.com, under topical lectures, there's a set called Jewish Roots you can listen to. There's a set called Torah Observance. Uh, there will be some overlap in the content, but it's, uh, they are different sets of lectures.
Thank you for your call. Let's talk to uh, Bill from California. Bill, welcome to the Narrow Path. Turn your radio down, Bill. I don't need to hear my voice. I don't need to hear what I said a few minutes ago. Okay, Bill, I'm sorry you weren't there. So I'm going to talk to Patricia from Diamond Bar, California. Patricia, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Steve. I have a, a quick question. Um, I often listen to Catholic radio, and um, they are always talking about um, how Protestants are so uh, scripture sotura, I think is the term they use. Sola scripture. And that they, yeah, that um, we just focus on the Bible, that they focus on the Bible and other church teachings, but they never say what those other church teachings are. Can you enlighten me? Yeah, yeah. The, the Catholic Church has long taught, as their official doctrine, that Christians are to follow the scriptures as the word of God and also to follow the church traditions, that is, the traditions of the Catholic Church, <clears throat> which they also believe are the word of God. Now, these, these church traditions are things that the Bible doesn't actually talk about, and frankly, sometimes they're contrary to what the Bible does say. And, and these are traditions that are established by the College of Bishops, or the magisterium, as it's called, where you know the leading bishops and cardinals and so forth, uh, on occasion, uh, they gather together to discuss some theological controversy, and they, along with the Pope, uh, make an official declaration about this, and that becomes the church tradition. So, for example, the Bible doesn't say anything about Mary uh, remaining a virgin, uh, after the birth of Jesus. In fact, there's strong suggestion that she did not. She seems to have had other children after Jesus. But the Catholic Church says, no, Mary remained a perpetual virgin. Well, how do we know that? Well, that's pretty much the way the church feels about it. And But not that the church just feels about it. They've actually made some official declarations about it. They also believe that Mary was born sinless. So there's certainly nothing in the Bible that says anything like that. But that's another tradition from uh, the magisterium and so forth. And so... Uh, purgatory is in that category. Uh, you know, uh, the seven sacraments pretty much are part of that, too. They believe you're, you're saved by keeping the sacraments, too. Um, so, in other words, these are things that... Now, some of the sacraments are in the Bible, obviously. Taking communion is. Uh, being baptized is. But, but the idea that there are seven sacraments that have to be observed is not found in Scripture. Um, and... Uh, even even the Eucharistic idea that the bo the bread becomes the literal body of Jesus and the wine becomes the literal blood of Jesus, that's a church tradition. The Bible doesn't say that it literally becomes that. Um, and the language that Jesus used that the that this is based on, I think, is most naturally understood otherwise. But the church decided somewhere along the line that they want that to be what these words mean, and, and that's become official doctrine now. Now, uh, that means, of course, that Catholics hold to uh, the veracity of Scripture and the veracity of church tradition. But, you know, here's the problem. Uh, every cult uh, that I know of believes in the Scripture, but they believe in the Scripture plus something else. For example, the Mormons believe in the, the Scriptures plus the Book of Mormon and the, and the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrines and Covenants, three, three other Mormon books. Uh, so they believe the Scripture is one of four books they believe in. Um, you know, Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Scripture plus the teachings 
of Ellen G. White. Um, you know, the Christian Science believes in the Scripture, plus uh, you know Mary Baker Eddy's uh, materials. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church believes in Scripture plus the traditions of the Church. Now, whenever there's, whenever you have Scripture plus something else, and they say, well, these are equal authorities. The Scripture is equal to this other one. Well, it never is, because these other things always have their points of disagreement with Scripture. And when they do, it's the other thing rather than Scripture that ends up being followed. So the Catholic Church would say, Scripture and tradition are both equally authoritative. But when you find that the tradition goes against Scripture, well, the Scripture always has to bite the dust. It's always the other thing that trumps Scripture. Same thing with the Book of Mormon or any, any other group that has Scripture plus other things that are supposedly equal to Scripture. Well, the problem is when there's a disagreement between Scripture and, the, and that plus, it's the plus that carries the day and Scripture ends up suffering for it. I mean, for example, uh, the Catholic Church teaches that the priests should be celibate and unmarried. But Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church leaders, the, the bishops, should be the husbands of one wife and have children. Now, okay, that's a direct statement of Scripture that a qualification for a bishop is to be married and have children. The Catholic Church, though, it's a qualification of bishops that they can't be married. So... You know, full well, you keep your traditions and reject Scripture, as Jesus said to the Pharisees. Uh, so this is, this is the problem. So this is why Protestants distinguished themselves when they broke away from the Catholic Church as saying, no, we don't believe in Scripture and tradition. We believe in Scripture alone. Now, to say we believe in Scripture alone, it doesn't mean that we don't believe anything that's not found in Scripture. We believe lots of things that aren't found in Scripture. I believe some of the things I see in the newspaper. I believe some of the things I read in science books or in history books that aren't Scripture. We're not saying Scripture is the only place we get information, but it does mean that when it comes to setting the norms of what Christianity is and what Christian doctrine is, we're not going to add something to the Scriptures as an authority equal to the Scriptures. You know, we might have our traditions and we might recognize them as traditions, but we have to recognize that they do not have the same authority as Scripture does, because our traditions are human in origin, and the Scriptures are, the scriptures are divine in origin. So um, the Protestant Church, when it says sola Scripture, it means Scripture alone, as opposed to the Catholic doctrine of Scripture plus tradition. And, uh, and by the way, uh, the Orthodox Church would also accept Scripture plus tradition. Um, so the Protestants are pretty much uh, known for that whole sola Scripture idea, and that's what it means. It just means we don't accept the traditions as being on the same level with Scripture. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thank you for your call. Bill from California is back. I hope. I hope you're there this time. Hi, Bill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ended up hanging up on myself. But uh, I had two questions. Uh, one was regarding self-defense. Bible talks about turning the other cheek, so I'm wondering about self-defense. Uh, the other thing is regarding... Babies that have been sadly aborted, or babies that have been miscarried, uh, mm -hmm. how that how that influence? Are they going to be in heaven? I'm hoping they are. Uh, well, I believe that all babies who die go to heaven. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think God holds it against a child that they never knew anything 
including their own name, and died. Uh, I mean, they didn't. They never knew their parents. They never knew themselves. They never knew anything. And yet, because they didn't know Jesus, somehow they're damned. Now, I believe that Jesus said, let the little children come to me of such is the kingdom of God. And he said that about infants in Mark chapter 10. Uh, this was uh, people bringing infants to Jesus. The disciples said, no, they're not worth it. And Jesus said, no, let them come. Of such is, he said, the kingdom of God is made up of such. So I believe infants belong to Jesus. I believe once they reach an age of maturity where they can make a choice to do evil and they choose to go wrong, that's, of course, when when that changes. Uh, until then, I think they're under grace. Now, um, as, as far as self-defense, the Bible doesn't really... Uh, discourage self-defense anywhere. Uh, when Jesus talked about turning the other cheek, that was not a discussion of self-defense. Uh, he said, if a man strikes you with his right hand on one cheek, turn the other one to him too. Well, uh, or the way he he didn't say right, he said if he strikes you on the right cheek. Well, if he's using his right hand, he's and he's facing you. His right hand is facing your left cheek. So if he's going to strike you on the right cheek with his right hand, he's going to give, he's giving you the back of his hand. He's not punching you. He's not trying to hurt you or kill you. He's trying to insult you. In a shame-based culture, to spit in someone's face or to slap someone in the face was, was a great insult. In fact, even in more modern times, that's sometimes how people challenge another person to a duel, slap across the face with your glove. You know, this is not self-defense. You know, turning the other cheek is not refusing self-defense because you're not in danger. There's no danger here. There's just an insult. And Jesus said, well, just, you know, absorb the insult and let them keep insulting you if they want to. That's, that's the point he's making because turning the other cheek is not in a context where there's any danger to anybody. So uh, I believe that uh, the Bible does not anywhere forbid self-defense. And throughout the Bible, it would appear that self-defense is simply a normal thing when someone is in danger. Although a Christian might choose not to use lethal force because they have compassion on the person who's attacking them. But that'd be another, another subject. That'd be a matter of personal conscience. The Bible never says that you cannot defend yourself against harm and danger. Sorry we're out of time. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg. We are listener-supported. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. Check it out, and uh, let's talk again tomorrow.